welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. And today we got a Q&A. And we, got a, we, got a, we got a couple of distractions in the background if you guys hear noises. We got inflatable knee braces going on, um, which I don't know if those are triggering. The, they're, not, they're not knee braces, but yeah. Whatever they are. Yeah. Uh, blood pressure cuffs. Yep. I mean, essentially. Yep. Dude, or did you buy those or are you like no. renting them? Yeah. No, neither. Oh. The, com- the company manufacturing them is giving them to the hospitals and I had to like fill out forms that it, my insurance doesn't pay for them then the manufacturer gives them to me. Okay. Yeah. And do you give them back though? No. We should try those out. Like you could use those for blood flow restriction. So if you get like really expensive blood flow restriction, they're yeah. called the uh, katsu cuffs or something like that. They're uh-huh. like the original ones from Japan. Yeah. But you hook them up and you actually turn them on. I've used them once way back at Vigor and they like inflate up until your circumference is met. Oh yeah. And then you unplug them and you can use them. Rather like we take like knee wraps and we wrap them yep, and we're yep. just intuitively hoping we don't wrap them too tight. Totally. Because if you wrap them too tight, you can yep. really fuck up your I was wondering how these know like they just go until they like they feel my leg. Because if they just give them to any client, like it's. Yeah. There's got to be a certain like a uh, level of pressure. Yep. Or because uh, they stop, and when I walk, they fill up a little bit more, fill up a little bit more, because like my blood's like, yeah. I don't know, that's trippy, dude. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool though that they do that. Uh, for those listening, Travis had knee surgery, so basically they have these like cuffs that are um, getting blood flow circulated better, just because right? so, like my knees uh, isolated. Yeah, so you're not walking. Ex- so. I don't want to get blood clots. Yeah. Um, the other distraction is we got a bulldog running around and. We. Uh, yeah, he's uh, he's everybody's dog. So the puppy is we got a new Bubba, the bulldog office dog. He's he's rolling around with a stuffy right now, so it might be making them squeaky noises. And then after about probably two minutes of him playing, he's going to be tired because he's a big fat bulldog, and he's going to lay down, and you're probably going to hear him snoring. So oh my God. the breeder was like, just so you know, he's you know he's going to a new house, you know, he's going to get used to it and stuff. And like when he sleeps, he sleeps through the night, but he's really loud. So we're like, oh shit, he's going to be whining through the yeah. night. Cause usually that's what you worry about with puppies. This dude gets in his ca- little cage next to our bed and you just hear him just, and we're like, oh, that's what she meant. Yeah. But yeah, I'm talking about you, Bubba. All right, cool. So let's, uh, we got a ton of questions from, uh, Instagram. So we are going to start with these. Uh, number one is favorite Thanksgiving side dish. Uh, I guess pumpkin pie isn't a side dish. Oh no! But that's my, I mean that's honestly all I give a shit about going into Thanksgiving is the pumpkin pie. Um, so I don't have a favorite side dish, and we'll see what kind of turkey day dinner guy you are. Everybody has a different way of eating Thanksgiving dinner. I've learned this because now, you know, my parents are split up and then uh, my sister-in-law's parents are split up. My wife's parents are split. So like everybody, I see everybody's different, you know, and it's funny going to different, like when you go to multiple holidays and seeing like there's certain people who like won't let anything touch on their plate and they like to individually eat it. Mm-hmm. Whereas like I'm a monster mash guy. So my favorite side dish is really isn't like I can't pick it because I usually just take the biscuit and then I put everything on the biscuit and then I eat the biscuit with the turkey, the gravy, the corn, Damn. the stuffing, the mashed potatoes. Might yeah. as well just be like you remember those KFC bowls that yeah. were like mashed potatoes with oh, chicken, yeah. popcorn chicken? Yeah. Fire. <laughs> those are good. Yeah, I don't even remember, but I'm not I, a fast food guy, but those were fucking good. But that's basically what I do. I just take mm-hmm. everything and 
eat it with a ba- uh, with a biscuit. Yeah. So I don't have a favorite side dish. Yeah, I don't know. I'm t- I'm gonna say my family does fruit salad. Fruit salad is your favorite Thanksgiving dinner dish. That's the healthiest thing you've ever said. I, pff, sorry, <laughs> it doesn't have to be healthy. It's so good. I don't know, like the whipped cream that fucking. Oh, I know what you're talking. Not okay. just a bunch of fruit. It's like well, fruit salad to me. I'm thinking there's just a bowl of fruit. No, yeah, okay. no. You're it's, talking about like the where they put like the homemade whipped cream and Jello. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, don't people do that with sweet potatoes too? Like sweet potatoes and brown sugar and. It's like a casserole. Never heard of it. Yeah, damn, like, that sounds good. Yeah, I think it's like mashed, but it's like mashed sweet potatoes, but it's like a ton of brown sugar and cinnamon in it, mm. and then they bake it. Yeah, it's fucking good. Yeah, yeah, cool. So, those are nice. All right, uh, we'll go to the next one. Um, speaking of Bubba, why did you choose an English bulldog? Honestly, just Shannon's doing. I at first wanted a, uh, I wanted like a Rottweiler or an American bulldog, which. American Bulldogs are huge. Mm. They're like, they, they kind of look like pits, but they're just fucking huge. I was talking to, at the actually, the preschool. Uh, Conferencing. Yeah. yeah. Teacher-parent conference thing. Weird that I have to do that now. <laughs> um, and uh, she was saying she has an American Bulldog. It's 140 pounds. Whoa. It's like, dude, that's bigger than Shannon. Yeah. That thing's huge. Literally. Yeah. That thing is massive. Yeah. Um, but uh, she's always wanted, like, Lily, I remember Shannon telling me when she met me, she was like, I eventually want a bulldog named Bubba. Wow. And I was like, why? And she literally would go, because he just walks like Bubba, Bubba, Bubba. Yeah. And I always thought it was weird, but I was like, all right. And then the time came. Yeah. I've, I've always liked bull- bulldogs just because of uh, Rob Deerdeck, you know? Yeah. But um, I don't know. They're cool. They're, they match our lifestyle, too, because he's pretty, pretty lazy for mm-hmm. the most part, which is nice because... <laughs> You're not lazy, bro. Uh, I know, but like I'm busy, so it's easy to take them with me. You yeah. Know? But yeah. And we don't want you eating cords, bud. So get out of here. All right. Next question is going to be minimum amount of time you su- suggest to bulk. This is hard because I'm going to say that the bare minimum you need to spend is three to four months because I think anything less than three to four months is just not really going to show much success. Now, like, then that begs, people are going to ask the question, can you build muscle in less than three to four months? Of course you can. Um, but I don't think you're going to see, like, really crazy results in less than three to four months. Mm-hmm. Um, now, for most people, I'm like, let's let's spend six to 12 months. I think that's a more appreciable amount of time because, again, you, muscle growth is, A, a lot harder than fat loss, and B, it's a lot slower than fat loss. So we can have a six month fat loss plan and lose a ton of weight, 60 pounds, even like for some people, you know what I mean? And, and it's like, we can see a rate of loss per week that is very steady and consistent. Whereas muscle growth, some weeks you gain, some weeks you don't, some weeks you like gain a quarter of a pound and even a quarter of a pound is actually a good amount of muscle. You know, like I always use this as reference. It's not exactly the same, but if you take a 16 ounce steak, it's a pretty big steak, a one pound steak. If you put that on your body in reference to muscle, it's a lot of muscle, Mm -hmm. right? So if you gain a pound in a month, it's actually a lot of weight, but a pound a month is a quarter of a pound a week, which is barely anything. Some people's scale doesn't even read quarter pounds. You know what I mean? So for some people, they can't even like really recognize that. Um, So I think because it's such a patience game, I think six to 12 months is a safer bet. Um, and if you do less, the problem is, is you're less likely to sustain that muscle. So very similar to fat loss. When you take a slower fat loss approach, a lot of times you actually, uh, 
sustain it longer because you took a slower approach, mm-hmm. right? It's easier for your body to adapt to a new body weight. Well, the same applies with muscle. If you're gaining muscle over time at a really slow rate, it's easier for your body to basically adjust its body set point. You know, it's kind of like a thermostat. We talked about this with metabolism. If we set your thermostat to 60 and you have AC and heat, if it goes above 60, it's going to bring it back down to 60 from the AC. And if it goes below it, it's going to heat to get up 60. Yeah. I guess 60 is fucking cold for your house, but, um, you get the point. Yeah. In order to have our body adapt and stay at that 60, you got to spend a good amount of time there. So if you spend three months trying to bulk, it might take you two months to even figure out what is a surplus and get in your rhythm and actually start seeing some progress. And if you only spend a month actually building appreciable muscle, it's not likely going to stay. So when you go to cut, you're more likely to lose that muscle tissue when you go through a fat loss phase. Whereas if you spend longer, it's more like you're going to sustain that muscle that you built. So the, the thing that I can say from personal experience too, is that when I did my uh, full year of bulking, it was a long time to gain muscle. I gained 16 pounds. Some of it was fat for sure. I didn't gain 16 pounds of muscle, but it was the first time I spent a full 12 months straight, not dieting in a surplus training with a lot of volume, trying to build muscle. And now that I'm like, casually cutting off and on like there's I'll spend some time at maintenance and then I dive into it like I'm in a deficit again right now been like a couple weeks down a couple pounds already and I'm just kind of casually throughout this year been like I'm going to deficit and then when it makes sense to pull out because of stress I kind of pull out but I'm at a weight now I'm 100 this morning I weighed in 170 pounds I've never been this lean at 170 pounds usually I have to be 165 at least to be this lean which just tells me that that year spent building muscle was perfect because now I have this amount of muscle tissue that is not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like it's set and it's because I spent that time. So anytime somebody asks this question or, or really like wants to focus on a full transformation of their physique and muscle growth is included, not just fat loss. It's always like spend more time, at yeah. least six months up to 12 folks on one goal, always going to be the best. You're going to learn the most. You're going to be able to sustain it the best. Um, but I would say you would need at least 12 to 16 weeks of like really working hard to start seeing real real muscle growth for sure which sounds like a long time three to four months but really it's not that long in periodization terms yeah you know what i mean so but especially if you want to keep the result for the rest of your life yeah cool all right good answer we got one coming from rb coaching it says oh never mind i can't do that on a podcast why it says can you show can you show your new back tech too uh, <laughs> uh we got one coming from karen nicole uh Today's pod mentioned RDL as an accessory. Is it not considered a compound? If not, why? Yeah, so, I mean, it can be. So there's a few ways to answer this question. I think that, number one, if you want to start changing, so compound lifts are bench, squat, deadlift, right? Some people could argue overhead press, but the reason they're called compound lifts is because when we look at competitive powerlifting, you bench, you squat, you deadlift. Those are the compound lifts that you compete in. Now, I like looking at it as metric-based lifts instead of compound lifts. Because if we look at it metric-based lifts, it means that it is, in my mind, a compound for my goal, right? Compound lifts are more geared towards strength. Because the truth is, if your goal is hypertrophy, yeah, you should be doing compound lifts, but you're going to build a lot more muscle doing RDLs than you are a conventional deadlift. Because mm-hmm. a conventional deadlift is a little bit of quad, a little bit of glute, a little bit of hamstring, a little bit of back. RDL is like a ton of hamstring. It's a hamstring builder. You know what I mean? Um, now, if you program an RDL instead of a deadlift and you are progressively overloading that over time and you're tracking your progress and trying to lift heavier and more volume with it, I mean, it's essentially a compound lift, yeah. right? It just can't be considered that because technically nobody competes with an RDL. So metric-based movements are better because, you know, for, for, for me, for hypertrophy, 
Metric facelifts are nice because I'll probably use a close stance back squat, which is going to be better for hypertrophy, in my opinion, than heels elevated close stance versus a moderately wide stance with toes out, maybe heels elevated just because it helps me. But that wider stance is probably something that's going to allow me to lift heavier. So for strength, that might be the goal. But for hypertrophy, I'd rather go with a close stance. So that's my metric base lift. For deadlifts, RDL is going to be better. That's going to be my metric base. For uh, chest, a dumbbell bench press is probably going to be better than a barbell bench press. So I might track progress that. A seated cable row is going to be really, really good for my back. Those aren't compound lifts, but if I'm using them block after block after block and I'm tracking their progress, they have all the qualifications for a compound lift for my goal, which is aesthetics, fat loss, muscle growth, body composition. Um, It's just not something that gets competed in. So we don't call it a compound lift. Um, But no, I think think it absolutely can be for you. Now, I think she said something in there about, because she had like multiple questions like in the Instagram form. Um, She talked about going low rep because she can do the same amount of load with RDL as she can a conventional deadlift in a lower rep range. I don't see the value in doing RDLs in a low rep range, but below like six. I don't see the value in doing RDLs in a rep range above 10. So I think that the sweet spot for RDLs is like between five to 10 reps essentially, because that is a still a very stimulative rep range for muscle growth and for creating mechanical tension um, and getting enough volume to the muscle. And it still allows you to progress because if you're doing sets of six to eight or something, you can slowly progress that over time. Um, Whereas if you're doing a set of two to three, injury is way more likely. You know, it's a, it's, it's a lift that's supposed to go slow. Um, the number one way people hurt themselves during a conventional deadlift is when they control the weight down. You're supposed to just lift that shit and drop the bar. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, because it's a concentric lift. An RDL is very much so an eccentric lift, yeah. which is the, the downward process of the RDL. Um, so because of those reasons, I like the higher rep range for those. But if you go too high, now we're just putting a lot of tension on the low back. So staying within the five to 10 rep range is probably smart. Most likely you shouldn't be able to, I I guess I shouldn't say you shouldn't because everybody's different, but very rarely people can RDL more than they can deadlift. Yeah. So if that's the case, you might have a weak link in your deadlift from a form perspective, because if you're strong enough to lift just as heavy in your RDL, you have the capability to lift heavier in your deadlift. You just haven't figured out how to do it from a form perspective. Gotcha. Um, But yeah, I think compound lifts, like it's a, it's a term that gets used in strength world. But I think for, for other people that have different goals, I think going with like a, metric base lift is smarter. Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about our Black Friday special. We rarely ever do any type of discounts or deals or promotions, but it is Black Friday and I am in the spirit of giving because I love the holidays. So we have created a few opportunities for you to jump on that are literally life-changing. In fact, the whole purpose of these and everything about these opportunities or offers I'm going to make you right now are purely centered around how to make an unbelievable transformation in your physique. So your options are pretty straightforward. We have a 12-month transformation option. This is a paid-in-full 12-month nutrition coaching experience at a 10% discount Plus, you get free access to the Taylor Trainer app for an entire year. So this is literally a paid-in-full option. You get 12 months to coach with us at a 10% discounted rate, and you are going to literally get access to the training app for an entire year. And the reason we did this is simple. If you combine our world-class, literally world-class and world-renowned nutrition coaching, which is based on science and the experience of working with thousands of people, plus our brand-new Taylor Training app, You literally have everything you need, nutrition, mindset, accountability, training, the software for metrics, literally everything for an entire year. 
to make the biggest and best transformation you've ever made. I know a year is a long time, but this is literally the best offer we are ever going to make. And this is the one opportunity you're going to have to completely transform your body and therefore your life in the next 12 months. Now we do have another option and that's a six month transformation. Same exact thing, but you are not going to get 10% discount. So this is a six month paid in full nutrition coaching transformation uh, process. However, you will still get free access to the Taylor Trainer app. So this is very similar, but it's a six month paid in full instead of a 12 month. And the main difference is, is you are not getting a discount on the coaching, but you will get free access to the Taylor Trainer app. And then last but not least, we have a paid in full option for the Taylor Trainer where you can save 25% by paying in full for the entire year. So maybe you don't need the nutrition, but you do want to access the app and you want to jump on it and get a full year worth of periodized programming done for you, this is your opportunity to do that as well. So I'm going to put a link for all three of these in the podcast. I'm sorry for uh, holding you back from listening to this podcast further, but I did want to interrupt to bring this to you because these are three opportunities. And the first one, the 12-month experience, it really is something extremely valuable and honestly priceless. This is going to be life-changing. So if you've ever wondered about our coaching, if you're coaching with us right now and you want to jump on a chance to extend that relationship and, and, and save some money, obviously, and get free access to our training app, now's the time. This is not going to come up again. We have a limited amount of spots, and this is only going to be running this week. So once again, all three of those links are in the description of this podcast. And without any further ado, I will stop ranting and talking about Black Friday and get you back to the podcast of today. All right, cool. We, uh, we'll go to the next one. Uh, it's from Connor Reuter. It says, a specific journal to purchase for your first time. With journals, I think that it kind of depends. My first journal was blank. But that's hard for a lot of people because a blank journal is like, what do you write? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, so I would say the five-minute journal is probably the best first journal. I mean, if you listen to the title... Sounds pretty easy. Five minute journal. Yep. Um, it just kind of goes over gratitude, has a quote, has some affirmations for you to write. Really, really simple. The other one I would suggest if you're uh, looking for a little bit more like business savvy and like productivity, the self journal is really good. So the self journal is very similar to the gratitude journal, the five minute gratitude journal, but it just adds a layer of planning, productivity, clarity, stuff like that. Um, so it's, it's good for people who want to journal for self purpose reasons, but also for business or productivity or, or work reasons. Um, and then the last one I would recommend if you want more of like a spiritual side of things is the monk manual. It, it is exactly what I just said in the other ones, but it just takes a more spiritual approach to how they're huh. kind of like prompting the questions. Um, so I like any of those. First journal for a lot of people is five-minute journals because it's so easy. But self-journal is great, and so is the monk manual. Yeah. Cool. Uh, let's go to the next one. We got one from Katie Galog. I can't pronounce these. I'm a certified personal trainer. What certifications or seminars should I take to further my knowledge? I think for, for training, okay, so the, the first caveat or, like, thing I will throw out there is that if you're a trainer – and you're working as a personal trainer, um, you're probably working in a place that has other personal trainers. If that's the case, then I think the smartest thing to do would be actually to get your nutrition certification um, because that's what sets you apart. You know, if you get more training certifications, that's great, and I'm gonna recommend some here in a sec. But I think that one of the things that I learned when I was a trainer in person with other trainers at a gym was that the moment I took it to a different realm and I started getting certified in nutrition and I became a nutritionist and I became somebody who could coach people on nutrition. All of a sudden I had something that nobody else in the entire facility had. So it set me apart. So you could go get more and more training certifications, which I think is good. After you get your personal training certificate, you, you should go get specialty courses. 
but clients don't know that shit. They don't, yeah. they don't come to you and they're like, like one of the ones I would recommend is the pain for pain free performance, uh, strength certificate or something. PPSC or something. I can't remember, but it's Dr. John Russin. I've done it. It's a great one. Um, he's a really smart dude. I've known him for years. I, I highly recommend his for trainers. The problem is if you go tell clients that they're like, who's John Russin and why? Uh, okay. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? So now it's good to have that because there's a lot of techniques in there that do reduce injury risk of your clients. They allow them to perform better and harder, but safer. Like I love the approach they take and I use a lot of the stuff in my training. So obviously I think it's valuable and I think your clients will get better results from it. But again, there's very, very rarely do clients I work with that aren't coaches actually recognize and appreciate the certifications I have. Mm. They don't give a fuck. They're just like, are you legally certified? Yeah. Okay. Help me. I just want to lose weight. You know what I mean? So really you can outmarket any certification, but the reason I'm saying that is because I think if you do nutrition, it does create a layer of something that people can recognize and be like, oh, that's different. I haven't seen that before. Nobody has that. And that can help me because my diet is where I struggle the most. You know what I mean? Um, versus training, they probably like being in the gym. You know what I mean? So it's easy for them to continue training and all that. But uh, if you're going to go the training route, I would go with, I mean, you could go the typical, I did this, it's the... Um, Performance Enhancement Specialist from NASM. So after you get your personal training degree, you can get the PES, Performance Enhancement Specialist. Yeah, PES. And then uh, Joe DeFranco's uh, CPP course is great. OPEX Fitness is, uh, I believe theirs is the CPPS or something. Um, all the abbreviations are so confusing at this point. Dr. John Russin has a good one. Joel Jameson has a great one that's conditioning. He'll be on the podcast soon. Um, John Russin's been on. DeFranco hasn't. OPEX people have. So those are all really great ones that you can take your further, your knowledge further. And all of them have like a layer of something different. And one is great too. If you're, you're more in the like bodybuilding realm. Um, but it, you know, uh, prescript is another great one. If you want to really dive into the anatomy and stuff, but all of these have one thing in common. They're specialty courses. They're mm-hmm. not just a trainer. You can't do these courses if you're not already a personal trainer. So once you're a personal trainer and you know what route you want to take and specialize in with your programs and your training, that's when you decide to go one of these routes. If yeah. you want to take a scientific analytical almost like physical therapy realms approach to your training maybe you go the prescript route if you want to work with more gem pop people and just figure out how to get them stronger and perform better joe defranco's or john russin's if you need to work on your conditioning because you're working with athletes or you work with clients that have fat loss needs primarily joel jameson's conditioning one so there's all these different realms they're just specialty courses yeah. Uh, but those are the top ones I would recommend. Uh, but first and foremost, like I said, if you're really great with training and you want to separate yourself from the crowd, nutrition. Totally. That's where people struggle. All right. Uh, next one will be coming from... Uh, this is from uh, WWE Lady Jess. Will, you, will doing a 30-minute... Uh, easy walk before lifting to get steps in going to affect my workout. Most research shows that doing cardio prior to your training session, like at the beginning, actually does decrease your performance pretty significantly. So nine times out of 10, if we're talking about step count or fat loss, I'm going to suggest you putting it at the tail end. If you put 30 minutes of cardio or walking or bike or anything after your workout, you're not going to lose muscle. Like once upon a time, people thought you would lose muscle because that's like the anabolic window. Not true. You don't have to worry about that. I mean, if you just think about how our bodies are built and like the resiliency, there's no way that our body's just going to disintegrate muscle from going on a fucking walk after your workout or doing some interval. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. not, it's not the case. And uh, on top of that, if we look at like CrossFit, CrossFit has shown us that you can do tons of cardio and uh, strength training and you won't lose any muscle. 
all those guys were jacked and you know they'd keep running more and more and more and they'd get more jacked yeah. so um you can out train cardio from a muscle loss perspective especially if your nutrition supporting it so overall i always recommend doing your cardio after your training because it's probably the safest bet just because doing cardio before tends to decrease performance if you see a decrease in performance, you're probably going to see a decrease in intensity and volume. If you see a decrease in intensity and volume, you're going to build less muscle, period. Um, so that being said, there's also research that shows doing five to 10 minutes of cardio pre-training can improve mm. because it's part of a dynamic warm-up. So if we do something like walking on an incline at a fast pace for five minutes, we get our heart rate up, our core temperature improves, we get blood flow circulating. So combining that with a dynamic warm-up tends to improve performance. So a typical dynamic warm-up would be five to 10 minutes on a bike, which would be better for warm-up than, a, than walking. Um, and then going into lunges with overhead reach, Spider-Man lunge, uh, world's greatest stretch, hip mobility, like just the typical dynamic warm-up shit, face pulls over and backs with band, stuff like that. Um, and then going into your workout and that's going to improve your performance. So if we look at like both sides of it, taking it to extreme, making it bad, and then doing just a little bit, making it better. I think it's safe to say that number one, doing 30 minutes of walking is probably going to be fine. It's not going to do much. If you take it too intense, you're running, you're speed walking up. That's a different story. Um, so I think you'd be fine. I still would recommend doing it post-workout. I think dynamic warm-up, getting into the training session and doing it as a cool down is probably the best way. And there's actually been studies that show that can improve recovery because when you're walking, you're bringing your nervous system down to a more calm state, which is going to be better for recovery. Yeah. Right. So I think there's value in doing it post-workout from many different perspectives uh, compared to pre-workout. However, I think most people will be fine doing a 30-minute walk. Yeah. You know, I've never gotten so winded from a 30-minute walk that I like, I couldn't train right now, you know. Um, I think it's more of like running and rowing and biking hard that's going to do that. Uh, but yeah, that, I mean, that's a long-winded answer, but that would probably be my, my main recommendations. Excellent. All right, so the next one is from Rick. Rachel Wheeler, it says, I know it ranges, but how often do you change the macros up with clients? Depends. Oh, yeah. Depends on a lot of things. Um, so I would say this. Like, I think that, number one, it depends on where we're heading. You know, so, for example, if somebody's reverse dieting, I'm probably going to adjust every one to three weeks, you know, and that's going to be completely dependent on how their body responds. So with somebody trying to reverse diet, are they, is their goal to try and not gain weight or are we on a recovery diet? They don't care about gaining weight. They just want to improve health. If they just want to improve health, we're, we're going to adjust quicker. If they want to sustain the weight loss goal and we're not as concerned about health because we didn't diet them into the floor, then we're going to take a slow approach and it might be every three weeks that we adjust. It also depends on if we bump calories up during reverse and they lose a pound, I'm going to bump up again quicker. If they gain a pound, I'm going to wait longer. So there's always a buffer range, right? And then on the reverse, if or I shouldn't say reverse the opposite of the reverse diet, mm -hmm. um, we're in a diet, it's going to depend on, again, their body responsiveness, but it also depends on how long we're at this, you know? So if somebody is at a plateau, like we make an, we create a plan, we're following it, we're consistent, we've, we've dialed things in, that's step one. Now we can lay out new macros, a new nutrition plan for somebody, and it could take them a week and they got it like that because they've done this before, they've tracked, they know how to do everything. Then we could have somebody who has never done this before on an analytical level or a methodical level. So tracking macros, tracking data, these kind of things are new to them. And for that individual, 
it might mean we we have to take three to four weeks before they actually have a good amount of consistency. So that first adjustment we make after creating an initial plan depends on their consistency because you don't want to adjust a plan that is being inconsistently adhered to because they're not following the plan, right? You know, so the adjustments are kind of pointless. But let's say we make an adjustment because they hit a plateau and we got to move them forward faster. So we make an adjustment. I would still stand by that one to three weeks period unless they're making progress or they're inconsistent. If somebody goes three weeks, they haven't lost a single pound, but they're not consistent, then what's the point of me adjusting? Because adjusting is just going to lead to more inconsistency, if not even worse, right? So assuming they're consistent, then I need to wait probably two to three weeks before assuming that that adjustment didn't work, right? So if I make an adjustment and they don't, they don't budge at all after a week or two, sometimes I'll keep it for a third week before I finally adjust again, because sometimes your body takes time before it actually adapts and starts making progress. Um, and then in the other realm, if I'm have a deadline and I'm consistently adjusting to make sure they hit that deadline, I might adjust every week if they're not coasting, you know? And then in some scenarios I've adjusted once and then it works for three months because if somebody's losing a half pound, pound, pound and a half every week, why the fuck would I touch it? I'm just going to keep rolling, you know, because they're going to be better at it. So change it if it's not broken. Exactly. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of context here and it just kind of depends. I would say like if I had to give a very, very, very generic term or, or timeline or something, I would probably say one to three weeks mm-hmm. is typical because one to three weeks is typically going to be uh, the amount of time it takes before I can really assess and think like, is this actually not working? Yeah. You know, and make an adjustment from there. But yeah. I think it's it's too hard to answer that question to you specifically. Yeah. All right, cool. Uh, that was good. We will go to the next one. Comes from Franco Guzmend. Uh, it says, thoughts on people doing Pilates just to burn calories according to their watch? Uh, a lot of thoughts here. Number one, we've we've done a research review on this, so we can link it in the, in the show notes of this podcast, but um, or you can go search it up if we forget, but the we did a research review on fitness trackers. So trackers that actually track your steps, they track your calorie expenditure, all that stuff. Um, and we were assessing what the things they track and how accurate they were. A lot of this stuff isn't that accurate, but it can provide an accurate trend. So that the, the problem with calorie expenditure is that doesn't really apply there, right? Because the truth is, is you adapt to the things that you're using as caloric expenditure like activities. And if you adapt, but the tracker isn't showing that trend because it can't really determine or track or, or read your adaptation from a metabolic perspective, mm-hmm. it becomes extremely inaccurate. You know, it's just based on formulas. Whereas like your step count or things like that, you might, like when I switched from my Apple watch to my aura ring, it went from saying I was hitting like 9,000 steps a day to 14,000. Like it was a big jump. It was by at least two, if not three or 4,000 steps. Yeah. And I was kind of confused because I'm like, nothing in my day has changed. So either the Apple Watch was wrong or the Aura Ring was wrong or they were both fucking wrong. Yeah. But all that matters is I didn't touch it and I left it there and I know that's my normal. And as long as I'm using the same thing to track it, I can track my trend. Is it high? Is it low? Is it moderate? Whether it's actually 13 or 12 or not, it doesn't matter, right? Same thing. It's like body fat levels. The calipers are pretty inaccurate, but you can see a trend in fat loss going down. Then that's all that matters. Yeah. So um, with that being said... Uh, fitness trackers are not that great. Uh, they're, they're not going to really provide that much value because the calorie expenditure thing is not accurate at all. Um, and then the other side of this is, is Pilates is just not, in my opinion, the best thing to use for a caloric expenditure, like activity. Like it's not, it's, it's, 
it's not the best cardio, right? So from a, uh, a cardio perspective, you're going to want to do steps or training or actual cardio, not Pilates. Pilates is not going to be the best bet. Um, however, the last thing I will say is if you love Pilates, yeah, fucking do Pilates yeah. because the number one key thing is consistent movement. So this is where like, if you like Zumba, great. Do Zumba. You know what I mean? It's not my choice. It's not like, I don't think it's the most productive thing from a muscle or fat loss perspective, whatever, but you're moving like crazy. And if it gets you moving, compare that with your strength training. Awesome. You know? Um, so I just think that the whole thing is, is that I don't like clients tracking their caloric expenditure while doing any activity because yeah. they it just fucks with their head. It's not accurate. It's not going to determine like if you're burning 500 calories in a cardio session, but you keep doing that cardio session, I promise you in a couple months, you will not be burning 500 calories in that cardio session anymore because you adapt to it. Yeah. But your tracker cannot track that adaptation. It just knows that mm. 30 minutes times this intensity equals this amount of calories burned yeah. based on theory. But it's not, this is why a lot of automation and algorithms, things like that can be useful tools at times and give you information. But we always have to know that humans... Our, our humans and intuitiveness and, and what we know about how we operate and how we can adjust things because we're humans like that matters so much more you know what I mean so um yeah that I mean that's kind of a long-winded rant but I'm not a fan of Pilates if you like it do it yep yeah I want to take a brief moment to interrupt this podcast and shout out our sponsor Legion Athletics the world's number one best-selling brand of all natural sports supplements Guys, if you're listening to this, you probably take supplements. I'm assuming you take a whey protein. You probably have some pre-workout. If you're really focused on health, you might take a, a multivitamin, a green drink, a fish oil, whatever it is. Legion probably has it. And they are going to be using science-backed ingredients. Everything is actually dosed effectively and clinically proven. Everything is naturally sweet, sweetened and flavored. Everything is lab-tested, made in the U.S., and you're going to get a money-back guarantee. So the reason I'm bringing this up is not only because they're a podcast sponsor, but I truly value the team at Legion and I truly value what they are doing in the supplement space. And one of the things that is really frustrating for a lot of people that come to us is trying to find a brand where they can actually get quality supplements and they can trust the result that's going to come from them. Most people just search Amazon for the best result they can find and they trust Amazon reviewers. And don't get me wrong, if something has a lot of stars and good reviews, that's awesome. But you can also pay people to leave reviews. So go with a company that you can trust that is backed up not only by science and actual researchers in the lab doing things, but coaches like myself who have tons of experience and use this stuff on a regular basis. So guys, stop wasting money. Stop searching and searching and searching for the best product out there and just jump on Legion Athletics. They are the best and I promise you that. You can head over to buylegion.com slash boom boom and save 20% on your first order and start earning points so you can get kickbacks on future orders and eventually free products. So one more time, that's buylegion.com slash boom boom. Without any further ado, let's get back into the podcast. All right. So we're going to go to the next one is from, uh, let's do uh, Strive Fit Coat Gene. When starting a reverse, is there a general number of grams of mac of macros you increase in f carbs or fat? This is kind of like uh, like the other question about how often do I adjust? It depends on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So, I there's times where I, like if I had to give a range, like a, just a rough general range, I'm going to say like five to twenty five percent. 
the reason I would say five to 25% is because I think that there's some people who we, again, are trying to take a slow approach to the reverse because the number one reason we're reverse dieting in the first place is because we've achieved the result they want. And now we want to keep that result by reverse dieting slowly. So a 5% calorie increase is pretty small. That's perfect. Um, for somebody who really needs to restore hormonal balance or anything like that, we're looking at maybe a 10, 15, 25% jump even, right? Because we need to immediately increase their calories to get them feeling better and return their biofeedback, maybe get their menstrual cycle happening again or whatever it may be, depending on the client situation. Um, So it just depends, you know, that first adjustment usually I would say is between five to 25% of calories via carbs and or fat. Typically, if the diet is done properly, in my opinion, you should not have to add a ton of fat back um, unless you were dieting on a really fat, high fat intake. A lot of times when I'm reverse dieting people, we're bringing up fats just barely, if at all, and we're bringing carbs up because carbs are kind of like the toggle. I like getting people to a place before the diet where their protein's high, their carbs are really high, and their fat is like moderately high, but it's at a place I don't want to touch. I just want to keep it there because they're used to it. It's going to support their hormones. And now we can just turn carbs up or down depending on if we're in a deficit, a diet break, maintenance, surplus, whatever. And carbs are kind of that lever that we use to adjust. Mm. Um, so it really depends, you know. And then there's also times too where I don't even worry about the percentage of calories I'm increasing. Rather, I'm just like, I know how this person's body responds. So we might adjust by 15 to 30 grams of carbs at the beginning just to give them an initial bump to just get them feeling better. Because if anybody's gone through a long period of dieting, they know that stepping into a reverse diet and only getting five or 10 grams of carbs added on top of what you're eating right now is just a slap in the face. Yeah. I mean, you've been dieting, you're hungry, you're, you're tired of it. All right, let's reverse. It's exciting. And they're like, here's three grains of rice. <laughs> like, take it slow fuck that. You know, that's, uh, 15 grams of carbs is one slice of bread for like a lower calorie piece of bread, which is not that much food. If we really think about increasing our calories, you know? So I think the initial jump should be at least 15 upwards of up to 50 really just depends on what the body can respond to. And then after that, I might be making five to 10 gram jumps because five to 15 gram jumps. Cause it's like, I just want to slowly do this every week. So your metabolism adapts to it. Cause the goal primarily is, is I want to make sure you keep you lean. Yeah. But all of this depends on their adherence because if somebody's really psychologically taxed from dieting and their adherence sucks, I can't baby that process too much. They're just going to burn out. Yep. They're going to give up. Totally. So depends. Good. All right. Um, and uh, real quick, listen to the reverse dieting FAQ. Cause I went in depth on that question and however many more, I think it was 10 questions total, but that's what that whole podcast was about was answering questions. And I know for a fact I answered that one because that was a question from a lot of people. Cool. All right. Uh, next one comes from uh, Shelly DeHome. It says, what is the benefit of the box in a wide leg box squat? The benefit of the box is to limit your range of motion, uh, which can also be the detriment. <laughs> you know, it, it kind of depends. Um, so, few things here. Number one, we got to remember a box squat is an exercise variation. So we can't compare a, a, a back squat to a box squat. Yes, both have the bar loaded on our backs. Both of them have similar goals. But that's, you know, if we're arguing what's better full range of motion or partial range of motion for hypertrophy, full range of motion wins. If we're arguing what's better for strength, specificity matters too much that we can't even determine that. Because if somebody's weak link on the squat is the top half, then we got to do box squats because uh-huh. then you can overload it and you can work the top half of the lift because the box stops you halfway down. If their their problem is the bottom, maybe we have them load it less, sit in the hole and do pause squats deep in the hole. We work on that range of motion. So, 
you know, uh, Paul Quinn had a quote, uh, strength is gained in the range you train, right? And that's exactly what that is. So a, a pin press for a bench press, it's the same thing. It's the top half of the bench press. Well, that's because the people who need to do pin presses have really weak triceps and they have troubles locking out the bar or their elbows at the top of the bench press. So what do we do? We train the range to gain strength in it, mm. right? So they're training that top half in a pin press specifically. So, you know, the purpose of the box is because you need something to stop you. Um, I've used Dyna balls for stuff like this, like those huge balls that you can throw and slam because it just stops people. Like we're not sitting. Box squats, typically you sit fully, pause, and then you explode up. So mm-hmm. the goal of the box squat is typically not a, like a touch and go, but rather like a slow sit, control, pause, and then explode up. So we're working on that top end range from a dead stop. Whereas uh, pause squats to a ball, you're just tapping and going. Um, but it's usually just there as a metric or measurement or a metric to say like, here's your end range, stop, you know? Um, you can also use it for explosivity because if you look at a squat without a box and you're going to a deep range, you have uh, like a spring and some momentum. This is why a lot of times power lifters are actually stronger when they add some fat on their body, like they gain fat on purpose because you have you have better leverages and you have more fat around your joints. So you can actually bounce, mm. as funny as that sounds. Um, it's also why a lot of people wear like crazy thick knee wraps yeah. and stuff because it gives you a little bit of a spring. So if I go into a back squat, I can control it down and then right at the bottom, I can kind of bounce a little bit and then Makes explode sense. up. Yeah. Is that the best way to do it? It depends. You know, there's some people who are like really obsessed with control and would say you shouldn't do that. I think it depends on what my focus is. A lot of times I prefer to control, but there's times where momentum's fine. But you can't do that with a box squat. You're supposed to sit fully. So you have to stop, right? This is like a deadlift from the floor. Every time you drop it, you're not bouncing and going. You're pulling it from the floor. That's absolute strength and explosivity off of a dead stop. So the box squat can be used for that purpose as well. Um, and then I would say this too, the wide stance, typically you're going to get a little more glue, a little bit more adductors as well. So the inside of your thighs. Um, and when we take that to a deep end range, the chances of you hurting your growing are just way higher because you're in a really wide stance and you're sitting really low. A lot of people don't have that flexibility and they can have some issues with their growing, going to their psoas, their hip flexors, their abs. Um, so for safety purposes, the box is helpful too, for especially sure. in a wide stance squat. Yeah. Good, man. All right. I- I think that answers that. So next one will come from uh, Samantha W. Um, or Samantha NW. How to structure a three-day training split. I wonder if that's Samantha Northwest. Yeah. Um, not that I know who Samantha Northwest is, but shout out to you if you're in the Northwest. <laughs> um, how to structure a full body three days. But there's uh, the first thing I will say is, is definitely go check out the blog I wrote on this uh, Honestly, everybody listen, go check out the fucking blog because it was funny when I was answering all those story questions on IG. Did you notice how many blog links I dropped? Yeah. It was like five in a row. I was just like, oh, we have a blog on this. We have a blog on this. We have a blog on this. So um, I just want to make sure that is a full body three-day split different than just a three-day split? Could be. I think a full. She didn't say full body, so. Oh, she just said three-day split. Yeah, so Uh I didn't didn't know. So the blog is a full body, how to program a full body program. Um, it's like the complete guide to designing a full body workout. Um, so there's a three day, four day, five day option in there. So I teach all of them. So definitely go check it out for the full day option, which I think full body is the best way to go for three days. However, I think there's value in doing a upper lower full. Actually, I would go lower upper full because then you have two day rest between the lower and the upper or more days between the lower and the full because, um, so this is how, uh, when is this airing? Is this airing next week? Yep. So, uh, this week, 
fact, this is perfect because we're doing a, a sale for Black Friday and all that stuff. So that link will be in the show notes um, as well. But we just launched Bulletproof Bodybuilding into the actual uh, app, which is part of like what we're promoting for this Black Friday sales. Obviously, there's more included. So definitely click the link, check out the sales page. You can see what you could get um, for our nutrition coaching along with the Taylor Trainer. But we launched the, this program in the app on purpose. And I just finished, as we're recording this, uh, I just finished the three-day Bulletproof Bodybuilding program today. So there's a five-day and a four-day option, both male and female. And then there's a three-day option that is male slash female. You guys can either do it. Um, and with this program, I went lower body, upper body, full body. Uh, and I did it that way because if at first I had it going upper, lower, full, but then I thought about it. It's like, damn, you're doing squats and RDLs on Wednesday. And then on Friday, you have to do full body, like legs in. That would just suck. So I switched it. But um, I did it that way and I actually really like it from a bodybuilding perspective because it allows you to take a full day to just isolate and prioritize the legs and then a full day to isolate your upper body completely. And then a third day to prioritize the main muscle groups and movement patterns you want to build strength in in a full body manner. So maybe it's, you know, a overpress, a hip hinge, some rowing, like different things like that. But we have two days of isolating and a lot of bodybuilding and then one day of, of primarily strength and focusing on, all right, these are like big bang for your buck movements that I want you to progressively overload over time. So typically I've been a big fan of just doing an up, a full body split where we go, you know, day one bench or squat, day two bench, day three deadlift, and then having accessory work that is supersetted or even in a circuit fashion where you're doing like one A, one B, one C. So maybe a, a lunge with a press and a row, three together. However, um, I really enjoy the way this is laying out for the bulletproof bodybuilding, which is a lower upper full body approach. And I usually don't do it that way, but now that I've written it out and I've done it the way I've done it, I'm a fan of it. I think I might actually program most full body that way going forward. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, I think the, the hard part is to get in the nitty gritty here, but for the most part, my recommendation is either going full body or a lower upper full, um, and then making sure that you're progressing on some of the main movements and then you're just sprinkling isolation and accessory work throughout the rest of the day. And when you're doing, um, everything, do it with a lot of supersets and tri-sets. So push, pull, or like a, a lunge and a press, or even like lunge, press, row, like putting things together. Because full body programs can take a lot of time. Because if we only have three days in the gym, that's that's not that many days per week to get everything we need to get done. So you might need to be supersetting a lot of things in order to just get enough volume in there. Yeah. So that's going to be my recommendation. Otherwise, go check out the, the app, the new program in the app, or go check out the blog on the website just for the full body stuff. Totally. And we'll link both of those in this week's description. Uh, next one is going to come from Andre 3 says how to train after a week of illness and just laying in bed trying to get better. Ease into it. Don't overthink this. I think we get this question quite often with like uh, vacation or sickness or anything like that. Um, listen to your body and just, you know, ease into it. I think that the most important thing is that, you know, it obviously depends on what you got from a sickness perspective. Um, I used to always say, you know, if it's, if it's, like neck up, like don't really overthink it. You could probably still train through it. Um, if it's neck down, like below your neck, then you got to take some rest and you're going to have to really ease into it. And the reason we say that is because if it's above your neck, it's just most likely congestion, sniffles. So it's not really going to damage your nervous system too much or anything or cause respiratory issues. If it's below the chin, you're probably going to be coughing up mucus. That's going to be really hard to train. Yeah. So, um, ease it. If it's below the neck, ease into it slower. If it's above, don't worry about it so much. But at the end of the day, like, I mean, Look at the things that are really hard for you to do, whether that's hard, high-intensity cardio or it's like heavy back squats or it's 
um, high volume training or it's explosive work and just remove it. You know, instead of doing heavy back squats, do a leg press and lower the load. Instead of doing box squats, just take it out and go right into your volume work. Um, if it's a bench press for sets of five, maybe you do one less set, you go to eight reps, you do a lighter load and you slow down the tempo, right? It's literally just taking your RPE, your rate of perceived exertion, just lowering it a little bit, whether that's from lowering intensity or volume, doesn't matter. Just take it easy and ease into it because neurologically speaking, you're most likely okay. Unless you were sick for like three months straight or even a month, you would have this. But for most people who get sick for a week, let's say neurologically, you're fine. You're just as strong as you ever were. It's just that you might get injured and have extreme delayed onset muscle soreness because you, you were inactive for a week and then you go in and just beat the shit out of your body. So like take a week to ramp up slowly so that your body can accumulate and, or acclimate back to doing a lot of training. Um, and just be intuitive, you know, like, uh, like I just started training again. I had COVID and I obviously didn't train once I found out I had COVID, but when I was feeling better, still in my quarantine, I started training again, but I didn't come in here and do three rep maxes and shit. Like I, I mean, you came in afterwards and actually filmed me and I was still getting back to, I mean, technically I'm still kind of recovering, I guess. Yeah. But, um, when I was, uh, like just days after the quarantine period, I mean, you saw I was breathing heavy over the bar and I wasn't going as heavy as normal because I know like I probably could squeeze out the heavy squats, but why? Yeah. I didn't train for four or five days because I had COVID and respiratory wise, I'm probably still not a hundred percent, even though I, it, I didn't get hit too hard with it. It's probably smarter to just ease into it. Nothing bad's going to happen. So just be intuitive. Like if you were sick, take it easy. Yeah. Like go in and do the movements because that's the most important thing, but just don't overload like crazy. Yeah. It's as simple as that. For sure. Love it, man. Uh, let's uh, get a couple more here. Um, wants to know, oh, go, comes from Kruger Kroken. Says, what was your first tattoo? Uh, first tattoo was CJM, so Cody Joe McBroom, my initials on the inside of my bicep. Um, and I had it written, funny enough, I told my grandma, I think I actually had to do this. So I don't think I lied. I just think I left out the part about me getting a tattoo uh, because I was 17 at the time. And, um, you know, like, I mean, you, none of you guys know my grandma, but my grandma's very old school Christian lady, like would prefer no ink on the skin or anything like that. Um, obviously, she doesn't mind anymore <laughs> quite a bit. But uh, I told her that I had a project for uh, Mr. Hawkman's class, actually. <laughs> or no, it was Mrs. Hawkman because she was making us write poems. Yeah. Um, and we had to, like, have... It was, like, a poem based on her name or some shit like that. And I wanted my grandma to write, like, my initials for the top of the poem thing I had to create. So I had her, because she she's into calligraphy. So I had her do that instead of Googling it because I really just wanted to get a tattoo. So I took her calligraphy, and then I got it tattooed. Um, the problem was I was in Lakewood in the hood. So, I mean, like... Granted, I was 17, so I had to go somewhere that would Do tap it. me. Yeah. Um, not the best place, uh, and it was just fucking horrible. I mean, like, not even all the way filled in. The edges were fucked up, so I actually had to have somebody redo it later, uh, which is what I get for going to a shitty tattoo spot. Yeah. Um, which I've had a lot of tattoos. My first two tattoos, I was 17, both of which have been touched up and redone. So highly recommend to people out there, Invest more money <laughs> at first. Like, I didn't have the money back then, so I just said, fuck it, but invest the money. But yeah, I'll never forget being at a family dinner on a Sunday, and I was like reaching for the biscuits or something, and my grandma just like grabbed my arm. Is that my calligraphy? She was pissed. And then like a week later, she was like, I would have done a different font if you told me. <laughs> that's not my favorite. And I yeah. was like, well, that's the one I chose. So, um, yeah, 
That was tattoo number one. Touche. All right, next one. Another uh, kind of personality. What is your favorite workout clothes? Oh, and this comes from Alex Heish. Alex Heish. I didn't eat, just saw that. Uh, one of our local friends. It's a combination between ASRV and Legends. So ASRV stands for Aesthetic Revolution, I believe. Um, I, I, I love their shit. I, I mean, I literally am wearing their shirt and their sweats right now. Uh, so they do a really good job of making things work well together. So then you end up wanting to get the whole capsule, they call it. So like I have like training shorts with a training shirt that matches and yeah. all that shit. Um, I love their shit. I don't use, like, I actually wear that for work clothes more often than not because they're extremely expensive for, like, shorts and sweatshirts and or, uh, and sweats and stuff like that. So they're, like, gym clothes that I don't actually train in because <laughs> I don't want to ruin them. Uh, but I really like Legends. Legends is dope. They're really dope for uh, shorts. So, like, if you see on Instagram, I got, like, the tie-dye shorts and the leopard print shorts and all that crazy stuff. Those are Legends. Those are really comfortable, affordable, and they have a ton of different variations. Um, but those are my two top. Um, I used to fuck with Nike a lot, but honestly, I'm just not, not huge on Nike anymore. Mm. I don't know why. Uh, they just haven't, like, nothing's been popping out at me now that I've been discovering these, like, new, more specific to training brands, yeah. you know? Um, obviously, Nike's a global, they do everything. Um, and I love the Nike Metcons, but, uh, but yeah, I would go ASRV and Legends for sure. Dope. Yeah, I like those. So we'll go uh, a couple more here. We got, I think I already said that, but I just found a couple. Um, this one's from Financial Yogi. It says, how do you personally calculate your macros? Um, shit, same way my team does. So I literally use the exact same systems that our entire team and and of coaches do mm. um same formula same tracker same everything the same type of adjustments when i'm answering questions about how i adjust all this stuff same exact thing weigh myself every day take the average of the week assess adjust like that's exactly how i do it so um where my calories start from though is a little bit different i'm not doing a formula because i track enough to know where my maintenance is at i don't need to calculate it like i just know um and i'm adjusting based on that but i use the same exact software and system that my entire team does to do their they're coaching with their clients um, that I've created, obviously. So, uh, yeah, there's not much to that one besides I do our own shit, which I think is important. I, I practice what I preach. I use the systems that we offer and use with our clients because it fucking works mm. really well. <laughs> so when I have to get lean or when I'm focused on something, like right now I'm, I'm trying to get a little bit leaner for a while, um, and I'm kind of just teeter-tottering in and out of deficit over a long period of time, but I use the same systems that my coaches use. Yeah. On, for the exact, it's the same reason why I'm I'm back to running the programs in the Taylor Trainer because like I knew I was getting ready to launch this new program, Bulletproof Bodybuilding. I was like, I need to like do it and live it and train it every day and show people I'm doing it because I want to be a product of what I do and how I create results in other people. Totally, know? yeah. Cool. All right, last one is my coach. Their name is my coach. No. Oh. Uh, it's Batmani. Oh. It says, my coach said taking ibuprofen will mess up gains. Do you believe this is true? It is true. 
It is actually very true. We did a research review on this as well. So you can check out that one. We did one on uh, hypertrophy uh, with ibuprofen. So essentially what they found in research, um, and they found the exact same thing with ice baths post-workout, and both of them blunt hypertrophic responses. And the reason for that is because they blunt inflammation, right? So ibuprofen quite literally lowers inflammatory markers. But when we train for muscle growth, we are breaking down tissue and creating inflammation in the muscle tissue. So if we're creating inflammation, how do we build muscle? Well, we build muscle by naturally, our body naturally, fighting that inflammation and repairing the muscle. Mm. So what happens if we take ibuprofen? We blunt that response. We, we take something exogenous to fix the inflammation instead of our body actually having to adapt by rebuilding and building more muscle, right? Same thing with ice baths. When they do that, they see these inflammatory markers go down, which is why ice baths are great for... If somebody's in a tournament for CrossFit or basketball or football or anything, and you have a game, and then two hours later you have another game, fuck yeah, get an ice bath because it's going to be super beneficial to blunt inflammation, speed up recovery, get your nervous system in check, and then you can perform really well. But when you go into a competition, your goal isn't to build muscle today; your goal is to compete. Yeah. Right. So if we're to, you, these are two different scenarios. Um, same thing with ibuprofen. Like, there's nothing wrong with taking ibuprofen. Um, if you take too much, that can cause liver issues. So I don't suggest that. Um, but it can be an issue for muscle growth. So we, we want to try to avoid that um, if we can, especially post-workout. Like that's a big thing. If you're taking a post-workout, like that's quite literally, you're, you're using something to avoid your body doing it for you, which is what you want it to do. Um, I mean, there's even a lot of research uh, coming out now on, uh, and this would be good for you to ask your PT that you're with, uh, but on um, recovery from knee surgeries and stuff like that of actually avoiding some things like ibuprofen or the whole rice principle, rest, ice, compression, elevate, which I know you're doing. God damn. So I would I ask him, a lot of ibuprofen. I would ask him because the reason is, so the ibuprofen is probably the, the, the least of yeah. the worries because there's two things here. Number one, the, one of the reasons why ice and pain relievers like ibuprofen might not be best during injury is because it, uh, inhibits your pain receptors, yeah. which is good. You're not in pain, but it actually doesn't indicate to you how you're like doing. So that pain is kind of your gauge of like, am I improving? Is the pain going down? Well, I don't fucking know because I just keep taking ibuprofen and then guess what? I go walk around and I hurt it worse because you're blunting your pain receptors. So part of it is because you, and this sounds like hardcore, but you want to feel the pain. So yeah. you know, you can gauge where you're actually at with your recovery. The other reason is because inflammation, it's kind of like a fever. So if your fever gets too high, you have to take Tylenol, ibuprofen, Dayquil, something like that because you could fucking die. Yeah. But the truth is, is the reason you have a fever is because your core temperature is going up to kill the bacteria and the infection that you have so you're not sick anymore. Yeah. Which is why sometimes you want to let a fever run its course. Well, the same exact thing applies to inflammation. When we have inflammation sent to a body part, it's hydration, oxygen, blood, all this thing trying to repair this area. So if we remove inflammation, we may be slowing down the actual inflammation or the, the recovery from the inflammation. Um, so that's why the ice compression and elevate thing is not always the best. And then the, the rest piece of that is because they're finding that if we want to bring more blood flow into the, the limb, kind of like what those things are doing on your legs right now, yeah. they actually say movement. So I heard a lot of this research coming out before I heard anything about these things that you're wearing right now. So this might be doing the same thing, yeah. but this is why they actually recommend a lot of people who go through ACL surgery to start riding a bike sooner because you want your knee going through that flexion and extension of a bike without loading it. Because huh. if you're going through a bike or you're like laying, he might actually have you do this, lay on your back on the couch or on the floor and actually do like a bicycle movement pattern. You might not be doing it yet, but you may be doing it soon once your knee starts having more movement. 
And the reason is because if you're doing that movement, you're taking your, your knee through a squat pattern, mm-hmm. literally, but there's no load. You're just laying on your back doing a bicycle with your legs, which looks really odd, but it's that movement into the joint that actually helps yeah. recovery. Um, so I actually have an interview with him next month, uh, in the beginning of December. Um, Dr. Aaron, I never pronounced his last name, right? But he's squat university for those listening. It'd be interesting to get that PT on. It would be. Yeah. yeah. And so squ- squat university is a PT as well. And he works with Olympic athletes and, um, he, I mean, he has over a million followers on Instagram. He wrote, um, this book down here that's right behind me called rebuilding Milo. And it's like the ultimate mobility and rehab book. Uh, and he was the one that I heard talking about this and this latest research for PTs mm-hmm. and recommending that he actually gets people out of surgery. And he's like, let's start moving. Don't ice like do these things. And it's contra- contrary to what everything what's the, what's has his been name? for years. Uh, Dr. Aaron Horshig. Gotcha. Squat university is the easiest way to find him for gotcha. his website and all that stuff. Um, but I mean, at the same time too, like all that stuff that like, you know, the rest, ice compression, elevate rice principle. I mean, that's from textbooks that were created decades ago. Yeah. So we got to like understand that science is, is constantly evolving. And of course new things are going to be happening, you know? So, um, but yeah, that, that being said, uh, I don't even remember. Oh, the ibuprofen was the question. (laughs) I was like, I don't even remember the question. Um, it is true, but I also think like you shouldn't like, I don't think you should, if you trained at 10 a.m. today and it's like 6 p.m., you have a raging headache, I don't want you to be like suffering and going, I can't take ibuprofen because I'll lose muscle. Let it run its course. Yeah, like yeah. you're fine. Take yeah. some fucking ibuprofen. You're hungover, take some ibuprofen. But if you're popping ibuprofen post-workout constantly because your muscles are sore, like that's where it's like, okay, this is defeating the purpose. Totally. Get through the soreness. It'll it'll help you out with your results. Cool. Well, that was the last question today. So um, be on the lookout for the Black Friday sale. If you want to say a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, just check the link in the description. There'll be a sales page for that. Uh, it is a chance to work with us for uh, up to a year um, and get the bonus of jumping in the Taylor Trainer completely free. So you would get training done for you completely free and potentially a discount if you want to commit to a full year. Uh, so the reason we're doing this is because typically we don't do huge discounts on our coaching because, well, our coaching, in my opinion, is worth way too much to discount it ever. But we wanted to create some kind of special that allowed people to just have an insane transformation. So uh, it's it's basically committing to six months or 12 months, a long period of time, getting access to the Taylor Trainer app for free. Um, and the longer you commit, a small discount is applied to your actual coaching for once because uh, we usually don't do that. Um, but this is just, in my opinion, like it's, it's an excuse to do something cool that allows people to really take control of basically all of 2022 and make a complete transformation totally like we were talking about with muscle growth earlier you spend a year doing this shit with us like you're going to be literally a different human being yeah i can promise you that so uh now's your chance to commit to that there's a link in the description of this podcast so check that out um otherwise happy black friday because i think that's when this is airing yeah hope you guys had a good thanksgiving we'll talk to you soon